Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Good morning. We are, as a church, working our way through the book of Genesis. And today, we come to probably what is the most infamous of all children's stories. A story that uh, most of you know because you were taught it in, in Sunday school. It's a story of Noah and the ark. Now, do you guys remember that? Going to Sunday school and you have to color Noah on the paper. You remember that? And like you put a cotton ball for his beard. And he has a little bird on his hand. And he has all the cute little animals in the ark. Anybody remember doing this in Sunday school? A couple of you? Thank you. There's a, a couple of you of you grew up in church. And if your Sunday school teacher was really good, what did she do when you were studying Noah and the ark? Didn't she have a song? Arky, arky. How does arky, arky go? You can, can Remember? Build and build and arky, arky. Arky, arky. You guys are, okay, I'm done. I don't remember anymore. You guys have got it. But remember how much fun this was? Noah and the ark. It was like a really cute story. We did our songs, all kinds of good stuff. And therein lies the problem. Because of the well-meaningness of our Sunday school teachers who taught us this story when we were children with, with cotton balls and, and, and cute crowns, we've become anesthetized to it. The truth is that the story of Noah and the ark is a story of death. It's a story of destruction. It's a story of blood-curdling screams from millions of people as they die. It's a scary story. It is a story of the largest global cataclysmic disaster ever to strike our planet. It's a story of the magnitude that makes the bombing of the atomic bomb over Hiroshima on the ranking of a little child popping a teenage zit. Because it's nothing compared to the incredible disaster that God unleashes as judgment upon planet Earth. That's the story we have today. Where does it all come from? Why does God unleash such incredible disaster? Well, this is what we've been learning about. It all, it all began two weeks ago with what seemed like a small, simple, innocent choice in Genesis 3. Remember, Adam and Eve were allowed to eat from any tree on the entire planet except for how many? One. I mean, I mean to me, that's like pretty good. Any tree on the planet. But Eve was deceived, and Adam chose willingly to rebel and to sin and to eat from the one piece of the one tree and the forbidden fruit. And what seemed like an innocent choice unleashed a domino effect of destruction and, and death upon the earth. And only one generation after Adam and Eve, we come to Cain and Abel. We looked at this last week. And when sin is, is working inside of Cain's heart, 
because of simple jealousy. Jealousy over his younger brother. And even after God warns him to just simply repent, just simply do what is right, Cain doesn't do it and he, he sits on it and he marinates it and he keeps thinking about it and this desire for revenge actually leads him to murder his own flesh and blood brother. And what we learn is that sin is extremely powerful, extremely deadly, and we don't toy with it. And then what we ran into was the genealogies last year or last week, and we covered 1,600 years of history. Ten generations, and we looked at Cain's uh, genealogy. What we discover is in ten generations, things went from bad to worse. The seventh generation was the sample generation. It was Lamech. You guys remember what Lamech was like? Lamech, number one, was no longer into monogamy. He was into polygamy. This guy had two wives, and he was extremely violent for the most minor of offenses. He would kill people. So what we have is seven generations in from Cain, the world was filled with people who were violent sexual perverts. Sin has destroyed this world. And, and it gives us a total of ten, but it gives us a sample at seven. Things have gotten really, really bad on planet Earth. It's like the Taliban controlled everything. That's the picture of life on earth because of sin. And it all began with Adam and Eve's one simple act of rebellion. And just when you think it could not possibly get any worse on planet earth, we come to Genesis chapter 6, where we're at today. And what we begin with are some of the weirdest, strangest most difficult to understand verses in the entire Bible. So, let's go ahead and look at them. And it's called this, The World Hits Rock Bottom. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Okay, that was majorly weird. Who are these people called the sons of God? And like, who are these people, the Nephilim? What are these guys, aliens from another planet that happened to land on earth? What is going on here? And like I warned you, these are some of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible to understand. So I'm going to give you some two options. Either you can go home today and you can spend the afternoon on Google looking at all the theories of Nephilim and the sons of God out of this passage and you're not going to get very far, or you can just simply listen to me for the next 10 minutes and I'll explain just about everything you need to know. So uh, stick with me on this one. I'm going to explain to you what you need to know. And by the way, there's a ton of stuff that is fuzzy in this passage, but there are some things that are clear. And what God wants us to know are the things that are very clear. So let's begin. 
First of all, who were the sons of God? There's a number of theories on to who these guys are. Uh, one that you maybe have heard is, is this. It says, the sons of God are probably just the godly men of Seth's lineage that we read about last week. And what they're doing is they're marrying the attractive daughters of men. So what some people think is you hear you have godly men who are just marrying the hot-looking women instead of godly women. And at first it sounds like an attractive idea, men marrying women because of their looks rather than their godliness. Sounds nice, but quite honestly, I don't think there's much news on that one. That's been going on for a long time, and that still continues to go on. And I don't think that's it. What you need to know is that the term sons of God is very frequently used to refer to angelic beings. I wrote down some of these references. For instance, Job chapter 1 verse 6 talks about sons of God as angelic beings, as well as 2 chapter 2 verse 10, chapter 38 verse 6, chapter 38 verse 7, and a number of other passages in Daniel. So apparently, what you have here are these uh, angelic, or should we call them demonic beings, have somehow come down to earth and have all of a sudden started to take human wives. And they've tried to mate with human wives and have like these hybrid demonic human children. And that just sounds really weird, doesn't it? When we go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, we find that there are powerful spirits that were on earth at that time, and that they were around during the time of Noah, and God, at the time of Noah and the flood, He took and He bound these powerful spirits into prison, and where they stay until the day of judgment. So it seems like, from 1 Peter chapter 3, 19 and 20, that maybe there's some credence to this. This is some kind of powerful spiritual beings who are trying to come to earth and infiltrate the human race, even though it sounds really, really weird. Jude chapter 6 also talks about powerful spiritual beings that did not stay in their assigned place but came down to earth, and now also they are, they are held in chains, in bondage till the day of, of judgment. And it sounds really weird to me, and I don't understand all this, but I thought it was interesting that many of the early church fathers believed this is what this passage was talking about. For instance, uh, Clement, Tertullian, Origen, Philo, Josephus all believe that's what's going on here. The Dead Sea Scrolls talk about this is what's going on here. The Septuagint talks about what was going on here. And many Christians come along and they say, well, wait a minute, according to Luke chapter 20, 30 and 34, it says that and angels do not marry or, and they're not given in marriage. So how could this be angels coming in and trying to mate with human beings? And then some people answer it, well, it says they don't marry, but it doesn't say they're sexless. Now, do I know if this is right or wrong? I have no idea. These are things the Bible doesn't tell us. But it does see, seem like they are powerful, spiritual beings. Beings that were bound at the time of the flood, 
by God, and they await the day of judgment. But they used to roam the earth. There's a third theory that sort of goes from theory one and theory two and puts them together, you know. They say, one thing we find in the days of Jesus is that powerful spiritual beings possessed human beings. You guys ever heard of demon possession? Remember that? And you, sometimes demon possession really changes people around. You guys remember the Gadarene demoniac who was extremely powerful, would break chains, nobody could bind him? People wonder, maybe this was powerful spiritual beings that had possessed men, and these men had become very powerful, and they had taken all kinds of wives as their own. It was sort of an attempt to, uh, for these spiritual beings to corner the market on women and, and to infiltrate the human race. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us all these details, but this is what we do know, and this is where the importance of this text lies. You thought the world was really falling apart last week. We looked at Lamech and his sexual perversion and his violence. Now we know that the world is also filled with people who are demon-possessed and demonically influenced. The world has gone from bad to much worse. That is the picture. That is what the purpose of this little passage is for. Things are really falling apart. Next question. Who are the Nephilim? Answer, I don't know. How's that? I can tell you this much about them. Um, some people think that these are the children of these sort of union between these demonic and spiritual and human beings. Uh, probably not. That's not the way the text reads. The Bible talks about Nephilim in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33. They were in the land of Canaan when the Israelites came in to take the promised land. There are these giants there. And I have to tell you, the Nephilim in Numbers 13 are not the same Nephilim in Numbers chapter, or Genesis chapter 6. Do you know why? It's called the flood. Everything is about to die. And unless the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6 can do a really good version of the doggy paddle for one entire year, they're not going to be around. So what is happening in Numbers chapter 13 is when the Israelites go into the promised land and they see these giants, it reminds them of the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6. That's why they associate them. But what we have is these Nephilim are the heroes of old. These guys are the real nasty folks. These are the guys who are in charge. They're violent. They're really dark heroes. You guys ever see like a Schwarzenegger movie like Terminator? You know, these guys are like the Terminator. That's what they are. They're in charge. They're beating everybody up. Things are really, really bad upon planet Earth. That is what we have going on. Next question. We find that God chooses to limit the lifespan to 120 years. Why does God choose to limit the lifespan to 120 years? We saw last week that people were living to 900 plus years of age. And instead of getting better over time, they're like the cheese in your refrigerator. They start to stink and they get worse over time. 
they have more kids and they get more evil. So God chooses, it seems to, to be limit their lifespan. Now, here's the problem. Some people sit there and it, it sounds like what's happening is God says no one's going to live beyond 120 years, right? Moses lives to 120. But the problem is after this, sometimes people live beyond 120. Like Jacob lives to 147. What is this saying? Now, I am not a total Hebrew geek or scholar, but I have books by guys who are total Hebrew geeks and scholars. And some of the Hebrew guys, this is what they say. They said, if you read this in the Hebrew, it's very interesting. It says that God is going to limit things to 120 years. What God is saying, they believe, is He's taking the timer. He's flipping the timer over and says, okay, this is the last chance. 120 years, I'm giving people an opportunity to repent. After that, it's over with. This is God saying, I'm sending my last preacher. And Noah, will discover, it says, is a preacher of righteousness. He is the last preacher to call people to repent, the last opportunity. He's going to build the ark for 120 years, one huge object lesson where he's calling people to repent, to get in the ark with him. And what we find is nobody outside of his family does. This is what's going on when it says he chose to limit the things to 120 years. In fact, this seems to be what this New Testament affirms. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. It says, because they formerly did not obey when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which, that is, eight persons were safely brought or were brought safely through water. God's patience was those 120 final years where He's calling people to repentance. The text continues. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is interesting here. It's hard to believe that every intention of a man's heart, every thought of a man's heart was always evil all the time. But that's what the Scriptures say the world had descended into. Sin had totally corrupted and totally destroyed humanity. We can't say that about today. I mean, every once in a while we have a thought that's not evil, right? But this is how far sin had destroyed the entire earth in only 1,600 years. And look what God says about it. He is grieved He has made humanity. Imagine this. Imagine what it would be like for a father to say to their son, you know, we are grieved that I had you as a child. Your birthday is a day where we wear black. We cry over the fact that you simply were born. 
We despise your very existence. Imagine what it would be like for a father to say that to a son. But this is the kind of revulsion and the, of sin that God Himself is experiencing towards the sin in humanity that has taken over. And then it says this, And Noah found favor in the eyes of God. When we read that, all of a sudden we're going to get into looking at Noah, and we're going to see that Noah is a man of incredible faith, incredible obedience, incredible courage in an extremely dark and wicked time in his culture. And it's going to be very easy for us to want to make Noah the hero of the story. Ultimately, Noah is not the hero. God is the hero. And here's why. When it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of God, the word favor is the word grace. Noah, we're going to see next week, is a guy who's just messed up like you and me. Does he do a lot of things right? Yeah. But does he do some things wrong, like get drunk? <laughs> yes. God chose to show grace and kindness to God, to Noah. God is the hero of this story. God's grace in Noah's life is the, he's the one who's the hero. Even though Noah makes a lot of good choices, and we're going to see in a moment, those choices come because God is working in Noah's life. And the choices come as a result of what God is working in. Look what it says in Titus chapter 2, 11 through 12. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And what does God's grace do in our life? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Where does a self-controlled, upright, and godly life come from? God. The grace of God working in our lives transforms our lives. So in a moment when we're going to see all the good choices that Noah makes, and we're going to see things that we can follow and say, Noah, what, you, know, yeah, you blazed the path for us of being courageous and living a life of faith in this world. Ultimately, don't give all the credit to Noah. Give all the credit to God. Because ultimately, any good thing that happens in our life is a gift from God. Let's go ahead and look at the ark, because God has Noah prepare the ark. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, which we have learned. <laughs> And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark should be 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to, to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. 
For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. Notice, he did all that God commanded him. All right. How big was this ark? What do we need to know about this box? Picture the ark like a huge rectangle. Actually, it has the same rough dimensions as a coffin. That's maybe a way to think about it. It is 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Go ahead and put it up there, Jeremy. Thanks. Here's a look at what the ark would have been built like to scale. It has three floors. It has 100,000 square floor feet. You could fit 20 basketball courts full length inside. I believe that's on each deck. It has 1.5 million cubic feet. One door on it and 18 inches of ventilation on the top. There was never a boat built on the earth that was this big until the year 1853. Prior to that, the ark would have been the biggest ship built. In fact, get this, the Cuddy Sark, Cuddy Sark, which is the largest wooden vessel that was ever built, was 238 feet shorter than the ark. So for your trivia buffs, the largest wooden vessel ever built would have been the ark. And this thing doesn't have a motor. It doesn't have a rudder. It's just essentially a monstrous floating barge. Noah builds this whole thing pre-chainsaws, uh, pre-fasteners, and there is no Menards down the street for hardware. Is there any reason we would think this would take anything shorter than 120 years to build? This is a monstrous project that takes a long portion of his life. Now, as for capacity, some of you are saying, well, how could, like, the idea is, like, Noah gets all the animals of the earth on the ark, and how could that ever work? People have done the, the, the numbers on this, and, you know, the biology guys in high school, like Dave over here, he's going to love all this kind of stuff, because what they say is that animals the average size animal is the size of a sheep. If you took all the animals and averaged them together, that's the average size. The ark can technically hold 125,000 sheep. 
Now, if Noah didn't bring every particular kind of animal on the ark, but he just brought every kind of species on the ark, because from the species, you can you know, like multiply out the different kinds, like, you know, dogs. There's all kinds of dogs, but there's only like a species, and then you multiply them out genetically. There are 18,000 different species of animal on planet Earth. If he brings two of every kind, that means he would need to bring 36,000 animals on the ark. Later, we're going to see of the clean animals, he brings seven pairs. If you add the clean animals in there, that's another 3,000 animals. So that means that to repopulate the earth, to have everything on it that is on it today, he needs to only bring 39,000 animals on an ark that technically holds 125,000 animals. So if he put everything he needed on this ark to repopulate the planet of all the animals it has today, he still has the thing two-thirds empty. And that's plenty of space for all the food they're going to need because they're going to be, it's going to be, they're going to be in there for a year. Maybe give or take a little bit. And he also has room for a nice-sized basketball court for a game of uh, Noah and family versus the monkeys. I mean, there's plenty of space left over in this thing. So, folks, it is very feasible, very possible that this is, can actually take place. All the animals do indeed fit on the ark. Another question. How did the animals come to the ark? My answer, I don't know. It doesn't tell us. Maybe, like, they all showed up three days beforehand. Maybe they all got in the line like they're doing rides on Arnold's Park. Maybe they showed up years ahead of time. And Noah and his kids are just working on the ark because they have a major case of tennis elbow trying to put pitch on the outside of this thing. And they turn around, they're like, hey, look at that animal. Look at the size of that guy's neck. God, could you, like, maybe teach him to help us, like, do pitch on the side? I could use a ride. I don't know how it happened. But God declared that they would show up. Now, what do we need to know about Noah? I told you earlier that whenever we see a hero in the Bible, and like Noah is mentioned in Hebrews as a hero of faith, and he definitely is a hero of faith, and a man who has incredible faith and follows God for a long time, 120 years, against incredible opposition, a very dark, godless, demonically possessed culture. Before we make Noah the total hero, remember who the real hero is. It's God. God is the one who chose to show grace and shine grace into Noah's life, and God is the one who opens up each one of our hearts. That when we heard the preaching of the gospel, we responded to it. So who always gets all the credit? Who? Who? God gets all the credit in our lives and in Noah's life. Let's look at some of the things we learn about him. Noah's faith, Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. 
Genesis chapter 7, verse 5. We find this repeatedly described about Noah in the Genesis passage. Noah did all the Lord had commanded him. Like, he didn't skimp on the pitch on the side of the ark, you know? Like, oh, I don't want to do this last part, the bottom. That's not necessary. You know, he actually <laughs> did all. Otherwise, they would have leaked. Some people like to point out that as far as we know, and we don't know this definitively, but up to this point, it may never have rained. We talked about this earlier in Genesis, that the, it seems there was a thick vapor canopy over the earth. And this is one of the reasons that people live to like ultra-long ages. We, we don't know this for sure, but if it's true, this just adds to the story. Here you have Noah build this monstrous barge, this ship. Noah's like, I'm in the desert. Uh, what's a, a boat for? I haven't seen anything like that. Uh, where's the water coming from? We've never had water here before. What is this thing called rain? I haven't experienced it. But Noah takes God at His word, and he builds this ark, even though, remember how foolhardy this would have sounded. This would have seemed to make absolutely no sense to build this monstrous ship to give 120 years of his life to this and may never have even seen rain prior to this and conceived of the fact that there would actually be enough water on the planet to float this thing. Are you guys getting a glimpse of Noah's faith? And folks, this is the, the same thing for us, except maybe just in smaller ways. God called Noah to do something that nobody understood, and he didn't even understand. But he was willing to obey God's Word, even when it seems like it didn't make sense. Now, isn't that the Christian life? We obey and, and we trust God's Word, even sometimes when it doesn't seem to make sense. And we're preparing for a time that is yet unseen, just as Noah was preparing for a time as yet unseen, except our time that is yet unseen is called death. What happens after death? Anybody been there? The Bible says that by our faith in Jesus Christ, that when we die, it is the best moment of our life, not the worst moment of our life. We're living in faith. We're building our life in faith. Isn't that the same thing as Noah? Living in faith, building for 120 years of his life in faith of things yet unseen. Noah's life is just like our life. The choices we make are based on God's Word. We live according to God's Word, even though we haven't seen the results of where it goes. Im imagine what it was like for Noah. He starts to build the, the, this boat. And you, know how, you know how your neighbors like to look at you? They always want to find out what's going on in your yard. You know, you start working on something in the garage, and everyone's wondering, what, what are you working on in the garage? And then something gets bigger, and they open the, you open the garage door, and it starts to come out. And I picture Noah, like, starting this in his garage and, like, bringing pieces into this big field behind his house, and people are like, hey, 
What's going on with Noah? Uh, what's he building? Maybe it's a cabin. I don't know. Maybe it's a house. What's going on with him? And people are like wondering what he's building. And so people come up to him and they say, what are you building? And he says, well, I'm building a huge ship because God is going to judge the earth. He's going to flood this place and everyone's going to die and he's calling you to repent. Repent and trust him. And they're like, yeah, right. Like, he was an attraction. 120 years living in faith, working in faith. And imagine, not just like five years into this, but 10 years into this, 20 years into this, and feeling like this project is getting nowhere. Imagine what happens when he runs out of lumber and he has to go long distances to it to get it. Imagine what happens when you're like constantly doing pitch on the side thing. Remember, imagine the tennis elbow this guy had to do this huge ship. And it doesn't say this in the text, but we did look at the nature of the culture. He did not get support from people around him. If anything, he got ridicule from people around him. I picture sometimes maybe these demon-possessed guys would come in the night and, like, take away his tools. So it was like three steps forward, two steps back as he continued to try and follow God in faith to pick this whole thing together. But, you know, Noah followed God by faith, even when it didn't seem to make sense. And this is the same story of our life. What happened then is happening now. God's Word says different things that don't seem to make sense. But God calls us to obey them. Like, for instance, one of the things that God's Word says is, leave wrath to God. How are you with believing that? The world around you says, get even. Because if you don't stand up for yourself, nobody will. Yet God says, leave wrath to me. Can you trust Him? Can you obey Him? The Bible says, cast all your cares on God in prayer, knowing He cares about you. You know, everyone else goes to sleep sleep at night stressed. Do you believe Him? Will you obey Him that you can really cast your anxieties and cares upon God and not worry about it? Another one says, outdo one another in showing honor to others. Do you believe you don't have to worry about your reputation? Do you believe you don't have to protect yourself and build yourself up? That all you have to do is just honor others. And you can trust your reputation into God's hand. Do you really believe that? The world around us says, no, you have to, you have to honor yourself. But the Scriptures say, no, just trust me. Now let's look at let's look at decreation when the flood comes. Then the Lord said to Noah, "Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and the and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also." male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. 
and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. And on the, ver and on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole earth were covered. And the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth a hundred and fifty days." I picture the time running out and the animals going on the ark and Noah and his family going on the ark and Noah looking out that one door and there he could see in the distance some kids riding their bicycles. He could see it from the height of the ark and the town and the community. There he could see his neighbor. He had begged with him. He had pleaded with him to repent. Repent and trust in God because judgment for sin was coming. But he just mocked him and he laughed at him. There he could see the school in the distance where his kids were. And his kids had gone there and his kids were made fun of because they thought their old man was weird and strange because he's building this ark this huge boat in the middle of the desert. 
And there he could see the, the hardware store where he bought the pitch. And this guy at the hardware store was now pretty wealthy. He had sold a lot of pitch to, uh, uh, to Noah. And every time Noah was in there, he, he had begged him to repent of his sin, told him that God's judgment was coming, that time was running out. But he wouldn't repent. And as he looked at this town and this city where he had grown up in and known and the people he loved in the distance, on the skyline, he could see the gathering of dark clouds. He could hear the gusts of the wind starting to move. And slowly, slowly the door closed and it sealed shut. And that was the last that no one would ever see of that world that he knew. I imagine that Noah and his sons, they got in the bottom of the ark, real deep in the ark, and they prayed that the animals would be noisy. Because when the rain started coming down and the waters began coming up from the earth, I'm sure he heard houses being torn off their foundations, the splintering of wood, the cries of millions of people in anguish and in pain, cries that ended in silence. And finally, it was just the sound of the animals on the ark and the silence of the water slapping on the side of the boat. Everything was gone, completely gone. Now, I think that broke Noah's heart. I think it broke his heart that he was a preacher of righteousness, the Scripture says, and he preached for 120 years, but nobody would repent. The Scriptures say this, it says, because they formerly did not obey when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being repaired, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, was God harsh? Was He harsh in wiping out the entire planet? I don't think so. I think God was patient. For 1,600 years, He had people that were lights that had called people to repent. Remember last, year we, last week we saw Seth and his son Enosh that began leading revivals to call people to the Lord? We had the righteous line of Seth calling people back to God. We had Noah preaching for 120 years, but nobody would listen. And the same thing is going on today. You know, God is still calling people to repent there is another judgment coming. The Scriptures say the first judgment upon the earth was with water, but there is a judgment coming, and it's with fire. And everyone will face it. And the only way to escape God's coming and justified wrath against our sin is through the ark of Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only ark that will take us through the coming judgment. Look what it says in first, Second Peter chapter 3. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, 
and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. I want to go to the very, very end. I want to look at some applications. What can we take away? Number one, Noah and the ark teach us what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. The Scriptures say this, because they formerly did not obey when God patiently waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism corresponds to this. It now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An appeal to God for a good conscience through Jesus Christ is the only way to make it through the coming judgment. And number two, Noah and the ark teach us that a life of obedience means we often won't fit in with our culture. The Christian life is a little bit like Noah's life. We're to be set apart. We're to be holy. The Scriptures say that we're to be aliens and strangers in this world, that we don't fit in because of what God has called us to do. We're called to be holy, and we're called to be in a different mission, like Noah. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank You for the example of Noah's faith, and we thank You for the example of Noah's obedience to You. Even when he was in a dark and wicked culture, even when everything was against him, he trusted in your word and believed it was true. And after 120 years, he discovered that his faith was well-placed. Dear Jesus, today we come before you and we are trusting and believing your word that the most important thing that we could ever do with our life is to love and honor Jesus Christ. That may seem foolish to many, but we believe that after our life, when we face you, like Noah, we will find our faith is also well-placed. We ask this all in faith. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.